Welcome to First Generation Burden, a podcast dedicated to immigrants in the creative community. My name is Rich Tu and I'm your host. Episode 64, Season 7. This is the last episode of 2020. We produced 30 episodes of the First Gen Podcast this year and even got a Webby honoree, which is pretty wild. And a big part of our success is, of course, you, the listeners. So thank you for that. I decided to take some much needed time off from the podcast after the election and shout out to my family at MTV and the great work we all did for Vote Early Day. It was pretty historic for a lot of reasons, but I was feeling pretty burnt out, as you can imagine. I think you all understand why. I'm sure all of you felt very similar, too. And the work never ends, and I'm feeling a lot more optimistic about the future. Can't wait till we exit this year and move into brand new thought, brand new world, brand new year, brand new president. So that said, we have a great guest today. We're going to end this year on a strong note with a feel-good conversation with author Chris Ramos-Green. She is a Spanish-American writer and author. She has a new memoir out called Embrace the Girl. It's a heartfelt and humorous story about navigating adulthood and searching for meaning and love in Miami. Her writing has been featured in Thought Catalog, The New Tropic, and BuzzFeed. And we talk a lot about the creative process, how to take risks, her early days in advertising, and also how the pandemic changed her approach to the book. And for you artists out there, we talk about the book cover process from the author's point of view. It's super interesting. I know I learned a lot. And before we begin, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and drop a review. It makes a difference. So without further ado, here's a conversation with Chris Ramos Green. Chris Ramos Green, it's a pleasure to have you on First Generation Burden. Thank you so much. You're joining us from North Carolina. Thank you for having me here. Yes, I'm so excited to be here. You are an author of the recent memoir, Embrace That Girl. It's available now. Thank you for sending me my copy. I've been, I haven't been able to put it down. I've been reading it nonstop for the past few days. And also it kept me company. <laughs> There's a dog in, in your Sorry. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> no, I, uh, here she can hang out. There you go. Can't deny real life. Um, yeah, your book was keeping me company today, actually, while I was waiting in line for my COVID test. So thank oh, you God. for that. I'm so glad. Some kind of silver lining, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I would love for you to tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. We can jump right in. Yeah. So uh, my name is Chris. Just like you said, I'm a writer. I've been writing my whole life. I was born and raised in Miami, Florida. Um, And yeah, oh my gosh, it's so weird to, sorry, to think about like what else to tell you about me. Um, I am a second generation immigrant. My parents are from Cuba and Spain respectively. So um, that definitely influences, you know, my life, the culture that I grew up in. It's definitely been a big change to move to North Carolina, um, where I'm kind of <laughs> the minority here for real versus Miami, where I feel like everyone was Hispanic. <laughs> I love Miami. I am used to going to Miami at least once or twice every year, usually for our Basel and also just for either work, business or just pleasure. Uh, but this year is the first year in quite a number of years that I haven't been to Miami and I really, really miss it. It's kind of wild, right? I, I have really fond memories of Art Basel too. Like my, um, I worked 10 years in marketing and about the last five of those was in the art district and I was always working for Art Basel and it's kind of weird to be in a world where that's different now, you know? Totally. It is unbelievable. So I just want to double back on something you just said. So you call yourself a second generation immigrant. Mm -hmm. uh, the definitions that we use in this show, we 
I, for, for me, and I'm just, you know, trying to get educated for me, I lean into the two definitions of either it's the, the parents that came from home and, and then landed in the new country, or in this case, the United States, or it's the children of the parents. So I understand first gen to be two. So in my head, you're a first gen, but have you always considered yourself second gen or what did definitions not really land for you until recently? This is such a great question because I feel like the definitions were never a thing for me growing up. Um, I didn't have to define myself really until I wrote this book because people cared enough to ask me or to categorize even in the marketing. So um, my parents were born in, both of them were born in Cuba, but my mother was raised in Spain and then both of them landed in the States and then had been here for some time. And I was born in the States. So I kind of looked up the definition because I kept getting asked that a lot, actually. Um, and then a lot of people wanted to know, well, are you Latinx or are you Spanish? And it was like, well, I'm both. I don't really have a, a word for that. Like, I'm not sure. So I'm kind of going along and just I had to look it up. And that's kind of why I've been using second generation. Um, so I don't know. That's a really, really great question. I definitely, I resist labels. I have to say, mm. um, I don't like the labeling and trying to put people in, in the certain buckets, but I definitely, I don't know. It's maybe you can, I'm so sorry. My dog is going crazy. <laughs> why today of all days? <laughs> you are all good. No, don't even worry about it. If anything, I love these moments in the podcast because it just feels very real and you can't deny moments like this. Yes. Yeah. I'm, this happens. I'm home. <laughs> so pandemic. Yay. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I hear you with the labels. Like for for me, like I didn't even really start to identify with any type of label until I guess recently when really the past four years, you know, no coincidence there and the desire to reclaim some element of my indigenous self and kind of, you know, claim identity that was specific to heritage, you know? So uh, no, I, I appreciate you uh, providing clarity uh, for that. I, I would love to get into the book. I don't want to jump in too early, but you know, this, the book is autobiographical and this, this uh, podcast is about an individual's autobiography. You and I have a lot of similarities actually from reading your book. So the advertising connection, the marketing connection, and um, I have that history within myself, um, even now within my, my day gig. Um, and also you went to private school. I went to Catholic school growing up. Oh. And you, <laughs> yeah. And even the, the grad school um, aspirations, I did go to grad school. I want to know where the idea for the book landed uh, for you, like how this came about for you. What was your journey here? And also for the listener, it's a memoir and it's a memoir that that to me seems like it's a, um, a series of vignettes uh, of milestones in your life leading up to you turning 30. What was the creative journey for this for you? Well, so I had actually written a book post-college and it was a novel and I was toiling away at it and I was using it to apply to grad school, which I, I did not end up attending. But I got a little disillusioned with it. I dropped it. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I kind of came back to it and it was just a husk of what it was. Like it just, the idea had drained and, and left and I was brokenhearted by that. And I was judging myself for it. And so for some time I, I was avoiding writing, which was a passion my entire life. Like that's just how I process things. And it was the work that um, I did. And so 
I started to write about my 20s in light of turning 30, of approaching 30, as a way for my own processing and solidifying of that of that decade, which is really the decade that I felt like I, I grew up. And I was not intending that for publication. I was just playing and to be honest, wanting to fall back in love with writing and not have it be this loaded thing where I kind of felt like I had this book and I had failed to, to put it out into the world. Um, and as I kept doing that, it kept growing and growing and I had something. So I gave it to a few colleagues and friends of mine, like in the in the industry who I knew would give me genuine feedback, not I'm your friend feedback. And I got really good feedback from it. And from there, it just kind of kept snowballing and growing. And um, I, I kind of put it down for some time. I moved to North Carolina. Um, I had some stuff going on with my family. My grandmother passed. And then I this pandemic hit. <laughs> and I have a really funny story for that, actually. Like my husband and I, we went to um, a we were away at a workshop where we were not with our phones, very little contact with the outside world, was not watching the television. I was aware that the pandemic was something that was going on, but this was back in early March. So it had not really hit the United States in such a way where it like kind of transformed our life. So I'm at this seminar and we finish, we come out and we're at Target. We can't figure out why there's no toilet paper and why there are these signs saying like one for each. And um, that was kind of like our introduction back. And by the time we drove home from Charlotte, it was like two hours to my house. The world had changed and I, we were home and that was it. We were on this lockdown. So I used that time and the momentum I got from this workshop that we went to, to, to really finish it. And I'm glad because I, I feel like the focus it provided me being home, um, the removal away and like just exactly what I was going through being on lockdown at that time. Like I feel like maybe many people can relate, but I really started to, look at who I was and who I am in this time and space. And it gave me a really great lens to kind of go back to revisit that work specifically to pour more vulnerability into it, um, to kind of refine the storytelling and, the, and to push it out. Like I had a really sense of, you know, seize the day. The time is now. We didn't know what was happening. Obviously for a lot of people, you know, their lives ended with this disease. So I felt like with all of that, um, it kind of drove me to really finish and, and have the courage to put it out there, which was something that didn't happen with that first book that I wrote. So that was kind of like the whole <laughs> process from late twenties to now. How much of the book had you completed before the pandemic hit or before you had revisited? Was it just kind of one of those uh, like process based hobbies where you were just doing this thing was an amorphous solid and then it just kind of saran wrapped itself once you found focus? Um, I think I had written about 60 to 70 percent. So it definitely was pretty far along, but I was having a hard time bringing it home. And I also went back to that initial 60 to 7%, um, which was good. And it was a solid first draft, but um, I did a lot of show don't tell. And I put a little bit more vulnerability into it, um, knowing that it was a memoir. So I think although I had the bones and then some, I feel like in about two months during that lockdown, um, I pretty much 
transformed it and it doubled in size. So it was quite a lot of work towards the end. Yeah, totally. No, I, it really tells in the book too. I, what I'm, what's interesting to me in the book and I, and I don't often read a lot of memoirs. So this is um, newish in my, um, in my reading space, but uh, the, the framing device of being in a seminar and then, and then starting with uh, the vignettes, I guess at the age of 21, 22, I suppose it is. And then there's that slow buildup. Was that always the journey or was the intent from a narrative perspective? Yes. Um, yeah, I actually, when I started putting that first draft, um, I was in a, a seminar, um, and the, the seminar that I was actually just describing to you recently this March was part of the same series. Um, I actually waited a really long time before I went on to the next part of that. And I knew once I got out of there, like just the things that, that I learned and how it affected me and especially looking back and putting that I guess defining that 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 decade, uh, I knew that that's exactly where I needed to to start and end this particular story. I want to talk a little bit about some of the some of the the post college uh, mindset of the book. So I remember leaving college. Oh man, it was like a million years ago. <laughs> but but so much of the book it really rang true for me like the, the the idea of the first adult apartment like the considering your your college apartment your first quote unquote apartment the first apartment that you got like as an adult your first um one night stand your first everything you know <laughs> like well how was how difficult was it for you to find the vulnerability or pull it out of yourself was that something that was an easy pour or was that hard um, no, it, it was hard. Um, I'm definitely more of an introvert. So being in my isolated space when I didn't think about people reading it was easier for me, um, than it would be for even like talking about it right now. <laughs> like it's actually harder now than putting it pen to paper, but, um, yeah, it was hard. I, I did like probably two drafts to get that initial 60 to 7%, um, 60 to 70, sorry. And I think with every single time I had to go back and really put myself into it. It's, it's tough. It's tough for several reasons. One, I'm a private person and I'm also human. Obviously I care what, what people think, maybe too much, who knows, but, um, it was hard for me to think about that and the judgments. And, the second part in writing something that is based in truth, you know, I, I didn't want to put anyone else out there or paint anyone in any sort of a negative light. So um, I was very intentional with how I told the story. Um, like the point of my book is literally to be the author of your own life. I had massive accountability. So even the stories that I shared, I only chose the ones that I can neutrally look at it and accept my responsibility my participation and my creation of it. So it was definitely an intentional process and it was difficult to put myself out there. Um, but at the same time, it's art, it's self-expression. I wanted it to be relatable and I knew if I didn't really put the nitty gritty, then it would just read kind of bland and nobody would relate to it. You know, like the one night stand, like, you know, my parents read this <laughs> or my mom did at least, my dad hasn't yet. That was definitely a weird one to put in there. Um, but I felt like a lot of people bring that up to me and they're like yeah I totally relate to it so it was worth it but yeah it was hard yeah I was actually going to be my next question it's like what was your parents think I remember it was weird when my parents 
found out I had tattoos. <laughs> that was a hard conversation. <laughs> so I can't, I imagine that this was, you know, a bridge you have to cross. Oh my gosh. Yeah. My parents, I think my, my parents have gone a long way and I don't know, I might be making this up or maybe only speaking for my experience, but I feel like immigrant parents are also just like so much more easily shocked. Like if I ever got a tattoo, my parents would freak out. I feel like more than other parents yeah. would. I don't know if it's like a, an immigrant thing. I don't know, but um, yeah, it was, it was definitely, it was definitely strange. My, my mom read it and she, she was not like, she was not super shocked about a lot, but she definitely had questions on who she had. Um, she, she actually was a bit taken aback by my honesty with like my insecurities and my vulnerabilities. And she's like, I had no idea you felt that way, which was kind of a cool and an interesting moment, you know, between my mother, the woman who birthed me that, you know, she got to learn this new side of me because, you know, she doesn't experience me like, like that. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. The idea of your parents and your family experiencing you, uh, I guess, uh, yourself like presented in the way that you want to present yourself because they always think of you in the way that they think of you as probably like their child or their baby or their relative. Yeah. 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 Exactly. I, I definitely feel like they got, um, they got to know me a different part of me. And I feel like a lot of the stories I told of uh, quite a few of them, they were a part of. So I think that they also got to, even go back and, and understand a whole layer of what that particular experience was like for me. And, um, and there was a lot of joy too, like in the stories I told of my grandmother and being in school and, you know, the Hispanic parade that we have, like my mom was just in stitches and she was like, man, it was such a great way for you to capture that and to kind of keep that, um, that memory alive. So there was a lot of joy in it too, as well as getting to know me. Yeah. Actually, that's something I loved in the book is the, the cultural specificity that you brought to the table. Um, I guess it was a Hispanic parade and, and it was the, you were asked to wear a dress or you were asked to be presented as Mexican, but then your mother and your aunt were quick to correct the school that, that you weren't Mexican, that you were Spanish. And then they asked you to put on a dress, but then the dress was specific to a city in Spain. Am I misrepresenting that? Yeah. It, yeah, you're, you're mostly right. They didn't go to the school, but they oh. definitely, I wanted to be, I wanted to dress like this beautiful Mexican woman in yes. this gorgeous dress with all these colors. And they were like, that idea is absurd. <laughs> like you are not Mexican, so you will not be representing Mexico. Furthermore, you won't even represent, you know, the, the typical um, Sevillana, they call it. And it's, it's like what most people think about when they think about traditional Spanish. It's like this beautiful red, roughly dressed, right. pastinets. They're like, yeah, that's not you either. Right. You're going to dress. The emoji. <laughs> exactly. The emoji. Yeah. So I didn't get to dress like that either. I got to be a farmer, which was the worst. <laughs> it was just not, it was not very pretty, but they were like, you know, they were very proud and they couldn't understand the idea. I wouldn't want to dress like exactly, you know, where our family lineage was from. Did you have a lot of that growing up? I mean, obviously that's one anecdote, but uh, for me, I grew up going to Filipino schools on the weekend uh, where I would learn traditional Filipino dances. And there is this one dance called um, the Sayo Sabanco. I think I'm probably butchering that and I'm probably going to get like um, emails where you have to dance on a bench and then jump across on this bench while wearing traditional dress. So we, we did that. Did, did you have any of that growing up? 
like that that culture pounded into your brain? Oh, kind of. It's interesting. So you went to school on the weekends. I my my experience is a little bit different in that I grew up in Miami, and in Miami, pretty much everyone is. Hispanic, um, mostly. And so it was actually into the school curriculum. Like that Hispanic Heritage Parade was part of the school that I went to. And um, I I think it was, yeah, I I think it kind of was pounded (laughs) in me. Um, More so when I was younger than I feel like as I got older, my culture, because um, I guess everyone was Hispanic, I didn't feel this, I don't know, it kind of like went to the background and I sort of didn't feel this need to connect with it. I actually felt more of a need now in my 20s as I was self-reflecting and um, wanting to reconnect and know more where I came from. And I kind of wish maybe that it would have been pounded into me a little more um, because now, yeah, I, I like I, I wish I spoke Spanish better. Um, I find myself wanting to ask my parents more and get more stories. And it was something that I don't think I was curious about because it was around me and everyone was Cuban or Spanish that I grew up with. And now that I'm outside of that environment, I actually find myself like craving that connection more and like wanting to know more about that part of my life. Gotcha. Yeah. Like it's, it is interesting. Like once you leave the nest and you, you realize what you're not around anymore, like how different your environment is. You, I don't know. I, for me, I, I found that I wanted to revisit it. Like I lived in Portland for two years and then when I lived in Portland, I just made me realize that, wow, it's so different from New York and New Jersey where I grew up. And I wanted to reclaim my self identity even more. So it just became like a magnifying glass into myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, I totally, I find the same experience when, when moving to, especially moving these past two and a half years that I've been in North Carolina, I find myself wanting to define myself more and more. And like I was telling you, I totally resist labels, <laughs> but uh, it's like a love hate relationship. Cause like a part of me really understands and wants to define myself through that because in in using those labels, um, they're educated to people. Like people here, like don't didn't know the difference. To be totally frank with you, um, in being Spanish or Hispanic, so yeah, I, I find myself gravitating towards it more and being more proud as well. I, not that I wasn't proud when I was younger, but it was kind of just like I don't know. I was a teenager, focused on teenager things, and mm. defining myself through my roots was not on the list. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whereas now I find myself wanting to, to go deeper and no more. Yeah. Do you think that's the post quarter life crisis thing? I want to dig into that too. How, how that idea crept into your mind and, and also for everyone, I guess it means something different for me. It, it meant it was a purposeful change in my career and also purposeful, you know, uh, desire to, to push like every facet of my creativity. And I, I think I found growth there. Like how did, how did your quarter life crisis realize itself for you? And do you still think you're in it? <laughs> I, that's a good question. <laughs> I often ask myself that, I don't know, this pandemic has definitely scratched that feeling. Um, but no, I, I think I've I've somewhat grown out of it. Mostly, um, I feel a lot more settled. But the way that I would define my quarter life crisis was, I, I guess, I felt lost after college. I felt a bit disillusioned with the real world, um, and I, I don't blame the real world. That being said, it might have just been like an expectation thing. But I felt like 
um, my senior year in college and maybe other people can relate, I, I just had this invincible feeling and being on a campus, there was so much, um, I don't know, there was like education was palpable in the air. There was curiosity and, and possibility. And then I felt like getting into the real world and mind you, I, I graduated at what was the great recession of our time. I was actually like in the newspaper as I'm going off into the real world. I was lucky enough to get a job. Um, because obviously with the financial crisis of 2009, everything had crumbled. Um, and yet still, even understanding how grateful I was to even have that opportunity, I just felt like the real world felt more lazy to me. It felt like uh, monotony. It felt like people didn't care so much. And um, because of maybe that financial crisis, um, I, there wasn't many young people my age where I worked. So I was working with people who were kind of like lifers or who had been there for a really long time. And not to say that they did not try at their job, but certainly over a couple years of the same thing over and over again, there's kind of it was just like a little bit of a rinse and repeat. Um, and that affected me. And just the construct that I think wasn't for me, uh, the going into an office and accounting for my time versus accounting for my creativity or for my results. I think I resisted that hardcore. Um, and I didn't know at the time how to, to find a place for myself where, okay, like I don't want to do a nine to five. Well, how else do I make money being creative during the worst financial time um, to be let released into adulthood. So I think that was pretty much what was driving it for me. Um, on top of that, like I had broken up with a very serious relationship who I felt at the time um, was the love of my life. And so I was also dating, which maybe you can or cannot relate. Um, <laughs> it's kind of just like a shit show is what I would put it. And um, there was definitely some fun moments when I let myself have that kind of fun. But it was also, it just all felt so like, really? Was this, you know? Um, and I was probably just being kind of angsty, to be honest. Now that, you know, time has passed, I feel like, gosh, like if only I could have enjoyed it a little more, I wish I wouldn't have taken it all so seriously. But, you know, that's where I was. That's truthfully where I was at the time, whether I, I didn't have that wisdom then to just kind of enjoy the question, enjoy the uncertainty and the discovery of it all, you know? Wait, what agency were you at? Can you say? Do you want to say? <laughs> Um, I, I will say it's closed since, um, it's, it was called accent marketing. It was in Miami. It was great by the way. Like I didn't go into it in the book over time. I ended up getting a new boss and they brought in some, some new people who was, who, by the way, she's still my mentor. So things got better and I didn't oh. write about that in the book, but <laughs> yeah, it was still, that was still my experience. Yeah. We only write about drama. We don't write about all the good stuff. Exactly. I kind of feel bad about that, but it's true. It's what, it's what served the story. So what were you doing there? Cause I went, I was reading the, the book and all the little bits and pieces I could gather about your life in advertising. It like those also ring as familiar to me. I was like, Oh yeah, I know what this feels like. Well, um, not, not necessarily the, the, the uh, frustration or, that part, I mean, I, we all feel fresh. I feel I'm putting my foot in it now. Like I, I, we all feel frustrated in our roles in some capacity. For me, I always kind of willfully just left and just went to another place that I liked. Uh, what was, what was your role there? And like, were you copywriter or were you something else? What were you there? Uh, so I started off in account management, um, uh. which 
was oh, you were great. client side. Oh, you were. So I was client side, and then I switched over later on. But at this agency, I, I remained client side. But I was always creative, and so I would sometimes get to put my hand in copywriting, which mm. is kind of eventually where I landed. Um, and I think that also had to do with my my unhappiness. <laughs> what was the the client side nature? So not to totally put it on on them. I think I was also in not the place I would have wanted to be. And my heart was always in the creative. Yeah, no, obviously. Uh, obviously by this book. Uh, that kind of whole thing here. <laughs> evidence. <laughs> Absolutely. No, you put together an entire like written piece of literature, which is amazing. So you're client side in Miami, though. That sounds pretty dope. I'm just going to dig into that for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, Miami is, it's, um, it's a huge hotbed of creativity, obviously. And also there is a, a lot of... Um, there, there is a big uh, agency community there. Um, you know, Miami Ad School, there's entire uh, schools, uh, you know, academic system with Miami's name. So I would love to know some experiences there, like any of the good stuff, because a lot of our listeners do come from either agency side um, or, you know, within, the, within that creative part of the community. So the good stuff. Yes. Um, I think I owe it to, I worked for several agencies. Um, the first one that I mentioned, I was, I was at for... I think like four years. It was, it was a pretty long time. And I think that what a- agencies offer is perfect. Like it's the hardest work, but it's great training in the profession of creativity. Um, I think that that first job and really set me up for, with a lot of skills that I still use today. Um, I think in even selling things, I think talking to clients, although it was not my passion, not because I didn't like my clients, but because I wanted to be creative. Like I understood a whole other side so that eventually when I went to the creative side, it was really beneficial to me because I understood how everything really worked together, how you really needed every single part of it. Um, the competitiveness, although I probably <laughs> resisted it when I was there, um, I think it does give you a competitive edge. I think anyone that's worked in an agency will probably say it's the hardest work, but it is really gratifying and totally sets you up. Like I think everything I learned there, I still use today. Are you still associated with that world? Have you made the full shift into being a published author? Oh my God. So my career has been all over the place. I spent like the first couple of years at agencies, like traditional agencies, And then I um, was freelancing for some time. I worked for a super cool agency that also doesn't exist anymore, but they, um, they were like, they were the coolest and weirdest place to work at. Like no one had a a job description. Like I didn't have a title. I just called myself a writer because I needed to do something. We didn't have assigned seating. There was a healer and that was like in the Basel world. So I got to like talk to artists. I had my own podcast for a while. So I totally get the space and that was pretty cool. And then eventually um, when I moved to North Carolina, I went client side. So I now do marketing for the client and I speak to people at agencies, which is a remarkable shift. Um, So I do that part-time, and then I'm a published author the other part of my life. So 
I still kind of have one foot in that world, but not in the agency world. I feel like it's a lot more chill on the client side. So I kind of, I graduated into that. Yeah. It's so funny talking about that stream and also talking about the, the 360 connectivity because I spent a long time on the, I guess, vendor side as a commercial artist, designer, illustrator, creative director, kind of jumped through a lot of hoops and then went to the, um, what was fully employed by agencies and then went onto the client side you know, picked up a podcast along the way and then still just do all this other random stuff. But, you know, to your point, like, I, there's really something to be said about that 360 creative mindset and also having had visibility to all the different facets. Cause you really do feel like you can tackle almost anything or at least have an approach to almost any type of problem or solve, you know? Yeah. 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 That's funny. So it, I feel like a lot of the creative people that were coming up in that agency world kind of had the same experience that you're outlining. Like they just jump around until they can find, you know, what they want. Um, so I'm actually also curious to ask you if you had a quarter life crisis, knowing that you were in the hustle of that world and oh yeah, post college. Totally. Well, let's see what it, it really does go back to the, the economic crisis of 2009, the housing crisis. So around then I had just graduated uh, grad school at, at School of Visual Arts in New York. So I had no money, <laughs> right? <laughs> I had no money and I was $80,000 in debt. Um, and then, you know, the the crisis hit. And then a lot of the friends that I had met in the world who whose careers were already thriving, they all of a sudden were struggling. So I saw a lot of reset. And then when I jumped in, and, I'll, and then I was in my late 20s. So that was around my quarter lifetime. It, it was it was weird. It just felt like I never left college for almost ten years. I didn't. I don't. I don't feel like I really hit a stride until I was like twenty eight, twenty nine. That's that's what I think. And then after that, it felt like okay, now I'm kind of in my twenties, even though I was out of my twenties. And then now I'm almost forty. I feel like now I'm kind of entering my thirties ish, even though I'm leaving my thirties. It's weird. I feel like I'm a decade behind. I feel like me. I don't, you know, I kind of, although I definitely like lived it up. And since I started working earlier, I, I had that experience earlier. I kind of still feel like the thirties or the new twenties and then the forties. Like, I don't know when I was younger, when I thought about turning 40, that seemed so old to me and I'm 33 now. So I'm not, you know, I, I'm not there, but I'm certainly not that far either. And I definitely feel so much younger than what I thought this age would be. Like at 33, I definitely thought I would feel way older. And in many ways, I still feel like, you know, I'm figuring out stuff. Um, so I don't know. I think maybe that's just kind of more universal to millennials or I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I'm kind of taking the LeBron James strategy of my life where I'm just going to try to be very mindful about my body, be, be very mindful about the things that I'm putting in and taking out and then just going to try to uh, protect the temple until I can't. And then I'll, you know, slowly retire and then do something else. At one in doubt, think of what LeBron James would do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Winning strategy. Uh, I want to, I want to talk a, a little bit about the actual book process um, cause I've been in, you know, conversations about doing books and it seems like such a daunting task to me. Um, I, I would love to hear any sort of advice that you have in terms of just really getting started. Cause 
I'm not a natural writer and some of our, and I've had authors on here before who, you know, who can really put out that content for you. What, what were the struggles and, and the ways you overcame those struggles of physically getting down to write? Huh. Yeah, this is a good question. <laughs> um, I think writing when I didn't feel like it is probably really great advice. It's, it's important to be consistent. I, I don't necessarily believe you need to hit like a certain word count every day, but don't leave it for, for time. Um, I think I like to stop writing when I feel really good about what I've just written. Um, so that I'm excited about it the next day. That's also like a trick I would say. Um, but for like the bigger structural things, um, I would say to figure out the story that you want to tell. I thought that was incredibly helpful for me. Um, now my process like this time around was a bit messy in that at first I knew I wanted to write about my twenties and I knew that I wanted it to start at the seminar, but it, I didn't totally have it clear in my head what the point of the story was, which was harder for me on the rewrite. So if you can under, if you can like in that one sentence, understand like, like in my um, case, it was about my twenties, but specifically told through the lens of becoming the author of my own life. So it wasn't all of my twenties. It will be incredibly helpful because then you will know what to include in the story to support and pay off for that point. So I think that is super helpful um, in giving you clarity in keeping you excited. I, I think keeping excited is also one of the biggest challenges because at first, um, and I think this is true for like most creative ideas, right? Like when you had the idea, there's like this adrenaline and it's like this amazing thing and you want to talk about it with people. And then, you know, it's like the honeymoon phase. And then once you get into the nitty gritty and you realize like, oh man, that's a lot of work or, oh man, I, let me Google, like, what is the length of, you know, like an average length of what I want to, to publish. And then when you see that number and look at what, what you have, it can also be very daunting. So I think keeping excited, um, and understanding that the entire process is the point. Um, I think that where I struggled and, I was better at getting off it than I was the first time with the book that I didn't end up releasing was understanding that like I, I put this artwork out there and I'm really like just grateful when people read it and it lands for them and they see themselves and they learn something from it. Um, but I wrote this book for myself and I think that's the most important thing for any artist to remember when they're in the trenches creating like this is for you. The, and the process is where the meat is like this time that you get to spend with this character. And even though I wrote about myself, you know, it's still there's a sense of removal and you're not you're going to get that back. You know, once you put it out there, it's a whole other different part of the process. But I think keeping motivated and understanding that you are doing this for yourself will make the work better. I think that whenever any of us are thinking about the putting it out there or the other people aspect, then it totally, it just affects the work and the work isn't exactly like how you would have wanted to made it. So I think remembering that, that although this is maybe something that you share or not, it's principally for you. So enjoy it and know that that is part of the process, even though it can feel like, ugh when do I get to the finished part? And it's like, oh man, some days I'm like, I wish I would have enjoyed the process even a little more, but I did savor it towards the end there. Yeah, there you go. I'd, when do I get to the published author part? That's the part I want to get to. Yes. <laughs> I want to talk about growth. Growth and actually self-help too, because going, going back into age a little bit, like that's something I've been thinking about a lot in terms of 
what what my next steps are and also you know the stage of life that I'm entering in and you know what's one two three four steps ahead especially in the pandemic here um how how important for you has growth been and also you know tied to your creativity but also just tied to your your personal energy and also what what stage do you think this expression is? Is that too vague of a question? No, I think I can riff off that. Yeah, I think that makes sense for me. So I've always been a seeker and inherently curious and always wanting to expand my awareness and grow. So that has always been very innate and natural to me. Um, I journal every morning. I gravitate towards I mean, I read all kinds of things, but I definitely gravitate towards books that will help me grow, whether it's understanding a different perspective than my own um, or even a self-help book. So I've always been really curious and I've had a lot of natural inclination to growth. And I think that it's vital. If you're not growing or changing, you're dead. Um, and that's that's just that's how I see it. Um, and with regards to like how that affects creativity, I think it's hand in hand. Like, like I, I think any art is born out of expressing something, an experience, a point of view. And that comes from expanding that experience. And in, in my case with the memoir, being able to step outside and look at it and kind of observe like that space and time. So I think it's hugely valuable and important. And I've, I've tried almost everything. Like, like I don't shy away from any of that stuff. And I think it's been really valuable to my work. Um, that being said, even growth as it pertains to work, like I think if you're not looking back at your, the work that you put out there or that you create and kind of cringing a little bit, then you're doing it wrong. That was like, I heard that somewhere. I can't like give credit to it, but it's one of the best things I've ever heard because um, you always want to go back and change and be perfect. But even that's part of like that growth process and that artistic process is like, yeah, you got to keep moving and keep growing. And, you know, even this book, like I, it just came out. I love it. And I'm already thinking like, well, it's, it's time for the, for the next thing. It's time for that next piece, that next evolution um, in myself as well. So yeah, I think it's super vital. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that idea of you know chipping away and also being somewhat uncomfortable in your own creativity. I I think that the idea of kind of adjusting your palate for discomfort is really important in terms of personal growth because if you don't develop that palate for discomfort, then you'll just never really push. And I know some people like fall off the edge and like, you know, that's also a line that, that that's tough to walk. But for, for the real ones, it's, it, you really have to, you can't do anything without risk that's worth doing. Oh my, like if I, that one sentence that you just said, I want to highlight it and put it up on my wall. I think that that is the most important thing is to be able to be comfortable or as comfortable as you can in discomfort, because that is the only place that is worth going. It's the only place that's going to give you artistic risks, risks in your life, you know, romantic risks, um, moving, you know, adventure. Like I think that you hit the nail on the head. That totally lands. I would love to know. Well, appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I want to know what was the hardest story for you to tell in the book? Do you have Ooh. that specific one? I do. Um, I wrote about my grandmother passing away and that was incredibly difficult, but it was also funny and you haven't, you haven't gotten to that yet. No, I it's, haven't. It's, it's later in the book, but um, it was very therapeutic for me. Um, I 
didn't really talk about it very much. I'm more of a writer, not much of a talker. So I feel like writing that was part of even processing that experience and loss. And it was really, yeah, it was tough. I can get emotional just thinking about it. But it, but it was also really nice because I, I got to um, relive and honor her memory at the same time. Um, so it was, it was a tough one, but I'm really glad that I got it in there. So uh, last couple questions. Uh, this has been amazing. I, I do have a question about the book cover, actually. Uh, we have a lot of designers that listen to this show, and you have a really beautiful cover by illustrator Paula Guerrero. Uh, yes. yes, and I would love to hear a little bit about that process and um, because a lot of the designers that listen to this, they're curious about, like, you know, book jacket design and how that goes. I've never actually designed a book cover myself i have plenty of friends that have but i would love to know from your side from the author's side what was that experience like for you oh my gosh i love talking about the creative process <laughs> this is a great question um so i worked with paula guerrero um at the last agency that i was telling you about and so she i loved her work i just loved everything that she did for all the artists that we represented it did Joe's for. So I knew that I wanted her to do my cover and it was her first book cover. So for the process, I pretty much borrowed so heavily from that agency stuff that I was telling you about that experience. Like I briefed her. Um, I, you know, gave her the book. I, I distilled what the message was, what colors I thought um, communicated that. I gave her references. I pretty much did like what a creative brief I would have done for, you know, the creatives at the agency that I, I worked for, but I also wanted her input and her interpretation as an artist. So the cover wasn't necessarily like, oh, I said I wanted these colors, but you know, at, when she did it, she was feeling these colors. And so it was definitely a collaboration and I really loved her interpretation. She gave me like three different options. I had a really hard time choosing cause she's, she's just that dope of a designer. And, um, yeah, it was her first book and she she took my brief and she kind of riffed on it and she created this really cool cover. And most people describe it as like, oh, it kind of looks like a Picasso, which is an interesting description because that was not anywhere <laughs> in my brief. But yeah, I don't know. She did. She just did such a cool job. And, and I loved it. Um, I wish I had that that um, particular like creative inclination, like graphic design. I think it's I think it's so important what something visually communicates um, in everything, but in a book, especially, you know, they say don't judge a book by its cover, but that is just not true. People will judge a book by its cover. So I definitely, um, in going through the different options, like part of what I got to weigh in as an author was like, okay, like these three totally capture the spirit, but what's the vibe that this is going to communicate on a shelf? Like, how does it represent the story? Is it going to be appeal appealing to what I think would be like the primary target audience and all of this? So it was a really cool way to like touch on that, um, that, that agency stuff where it's like a little bit of strategy, but also art, um, and collaboration. So yeah, it was a really cool, Hopefully that answer. I feel like I went all over the place because I got excited. But <laughs> no, not at all. Actually, no. I love talking about this too. What the cover actually reminded me of, specifically the the the, the Cyclops by per interpretation of you. There's this uh, painter and muralist from the '70s. His name is Philip Gustin, who I'm a big fan of, and he he had a series of paintings of 
um, it, it was pink. Actually, it was a lot of pink um, and also uh, fleshy tones, um, um, very similar to an aesthetic perspective like Gary Baseman, I, I suppose. Um, but a lot of his depictions were of uh, a Cyclops eye existing, um, you know, in, in this kind of pink fleshy world. But the the idea of it, at least the interpretation that a lot of um, critics took was that as a, as a self, it was a sense of self. So as a sense of self, um, all you feel, you feel like you're a singular eye. Um, so it was the idea of looking at your sense of self, but from a third person, you know, so it was kind of a meta commentary on, on the human experience. So that's what your cover reminded me of. And yeah, I think, I think it's really beautiful. And, you know, kudos to Paula. I, I think she knocked it out of the park. That is so, I really love like exactly how you took it. Cause that, it does remind me of the, the process of writing any memoir is like looking at yourself with that um, outside perspective. That's super cool. I'm going to look up that, um, that artist. Yeah, for sure. I'll send you uh, I'll send you a couple of links. Yeah. That'd, that'd be, yeah, I would love to know your thoughts too. Yeah. All right. So as we're winding down, um, I would love for you to tell our listeners anything that you got coming up. Like what, what are you working on now? And also where can they find the book? Um, so they can find the book right now on Amazon. That's probably the easiest place and it's available on Kindle or on paperback. Um, what else do I got going on? Uh, I just got a really great review that's getting published in December in December's issue of Publishers Weekly. So that's a cool thing to look out for that I'm excited about. Um, and as far as what I'm working on now, well, I'm working on this second phase of writing the book, which is being the published author and talking about the book and, you know, going on this virtual book tour. Doing and, podcasts. And doing the podcast, <laughs> really cool conversations like this with other creatives. Um, and then I'm kind of getting started on my next book. I've got the whispers of an idea and I'm in the research phase and um, I get to rent an Airstream for this research. So I'm really excited about that. <laughs> uh, I'm so jealous of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That sounds amazing. Uh, also, where can our listeners find you? Oh my, I spend way too much time on Instagram. So it's probably the best place. Uh, my handle is at Chris R. Green and that's where I'm at <laughs> for too much of my time. <laughs> awesome. Chris, this has been such an awesome conversation. I love your energy. And also it's been so fun to talk about the creative process and also talk about your book. This has been so cool. Thank you. Oh my gosh. I feel so grateful to be here. You're such an amazing host. I feel a little fangirly because I've been listening to your stuff. So um, I'm just grateful that you took an interest and enjoyed my book and had me on. Thank you. Absolutely. Chris, thank you. And also to all of our listeners, embrace that girl. It's out right now. So check it out. Thanks for listening. That was a great conversation with Chris and also the last one we're going to have in 2020. What a crazy year. I'm glad we ended on such a positive note. In the meantime, you can find the First Gen Burden podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, and anywhere you get your podcast content. Please rate us and drop a review. Go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes. On Instagram, we're at firstgenburden. You can find me, your host, at rich underscore tu. Thanks to Listening Party and Des Gin team for their support. And preemptively, happy holidays, happy new year, new episodes in 2021. Be on the lookout and also be safe, everyone. Wear a mask.